uh, one thing that we like to say here is nothing on the continent can kill you except for the entire continent. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today I talk with my friend Karen Pazanka, who works as support staff for the United States Antarctic Program at McMurdo Station. Now, I've been fascinated with Antarctica since I was a little kid. I've never been there before, and my conversation with Karen really rekindled my desire to go there. I interviewed her during the darkness of the Antarctic winter, when the sun hadn't been up since April and won't return again until August. Karen talks about what it's like to work in support of the amazing science projects taking place on the continent. She talks about how social life for the people who work there can at times resemble a traveler's hostel. She talks about what it's like to be able to go hiking and even observe undersea life in Antarctica when she's not on the job. She talks about how the McMurdo Library has a copy of my book, Vagabonding, which was a big thrill for me. I resolved to send her back with a copy of my new book, The Vagabond's Way, when it comes out this fall. In general, Karen and I have a straightforward conversation about what it's like to live and work in Antarctica. At one point, I ask her how I might find work down there. I will note that I needed permission from the National Science Foundation to interview Karen. All stated views are her own and don't represent the official viewpoint of the National Science Foundation or any of its contracting companies in Antarctica. We start by talking about how we first met back in the day and how she first got a job at the bottom of the world. Let's listen in. Uh, Karen, I met you in Philadelphia years ago, I think about 12 years ago, and as happens sometimes when you meet somebody at a random social event, I think ours was Thanksgiving, you become Facebook friends with them. And in recent years, I've seen that you've traveled around South America, and then suddenly you're employed in Antarctica, which is really cool to see. So how on earth did you end up working in McMurdo Station in Antarctica? Well, um... When I was in my, about 20 years ago, I read a book um, written about a woman who had gone to work at the South Pole, and she, while she was wintering over at the South Pole, she discovered that she had breast cancer, and so she mm. had performed, I believe, like a lumpectomy on herself, and it was, and at that point, I realized you can work in Antarctica, like huh. regular people can work down there, and applied a few times um, when I was in my 20s never got anything. Um, but then when I was traveling around South America on the day one of an eight day hike, um, uh, there was two other couples on the same hiking and I'm in the kind of the cook tent where they had everybody cooking for the, when we camped at night, I noticed that they both had all four of them had Nalgene bottles covered in stickers Hmm. and they clearly knew each other chatting about the, and they kept mentioning all of the ice and the ice and, and, I just kind of started talking to them, and I was like, oh, where do you guys work? Because I had already kind of noticed, like, all their stickers and what their stickers said and stuff. And I was kind of like, oh, we work down in Antarctica. We work at McMurdo. And I became friends with one of the couples, and they became what we refer to as um, ice parents. Okay. So they had both worked down here for many seasons, uh, and... It becomes a lot easier to get a job down here when you have ice parents and people who hmm. will put a good referral in for you and contact you, connect you with hiring managers. And so that's how I got a job. Um, I, I was very fortunate to have ice parents hmm. because it can, I've, some, I mean, people get very lucky. People get lucky every year and apply and get in their first year. And then there will be, I, I had a coworker who had applied for 13 years trying to get wow. down here. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. As a quick aside, what was the name of the book you read? Oh, um, honestly, I can't remember. Was it Sarah my Wheeler's? Sweet, my sweetmate has. I can pop it into my sweetmate's room. Okay. Um, she's not home, and she has the book on her floor. Let's see. It's called Icebound, a doctor's incredible battle for survival at the South Pole by Dr. Jerry Nielsen. Fantastic. I'll put that in the show notes. There's some famous um, books by women, including Sarah Wheeler's Terra Incognita. Have you read that one? I have not. Okay. I honestly haven't read a lot of books. Like, I haven't read Endurance. Um, I haven't read, like, a lot of the very famous Antarctica books. Well, that's that's fine. And actually, I'm curious. You you met uh, your sort of ice parents. Is that the phrase you used, ice parents? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now they're just like my friends, but we use them as, 
we have like a lot of there's a lot of very kind of McMurdo related or Antarctica related kind of phrases. Uh huh. Uh huh. And and we can get into some of those more as we talk. But but I'm curious to know what kind of job did you end up getting down there? Um, I like most people down here, um, I'm support staff for all the incredible science that happens down here. Um, McMurdo is the largest station on the continent. It's the largest American station and station in general. And it runs a little, a little bit like a small city. Hmm. Like we have everything down here. We have plumbers, we have electricians, we have dishwashers, janitors. Um, I, myself, in the summer, I work in the transportation department. So I, in the summer, I basically deal with a lot of logistics for getting people to and from the South Pole, hmm. different field camps, and then leaving the continent and going back to New Zealand. And in the winter, my job in the winter is um, I deal with housing, I deal with the mail, and I do a lot of laundry. Um, because somebody has to do all the laundry for the kitchen, hmm. the laundry for like the mechanics, and then all the laundry that gets all the dirty linens that get pulled from the from the summer from everybody doing that, and so then I get wash all that stuff, and get it ready for use next summer. Yeah, you emailed me once where you you described that you were like emailing from a laundry room, uh, and so I wondered about yeah. that. Um, I'm just out of curiosity, what is the temperature and airspeed there right now? Um, it's actually not as cold as I was expecting it to be. So it's almost midwinter. Mm-hmm. So we are in the, we're right in the, the thick of it. I was really worried about the cold. Um, mm-hmm. but I believe, let's see, I think it's like about nine degrees right now. Okay. So it's not nearly as cold as I was expecting it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the winds, it's actually a really nice day outside. I might go for a walk later on. Hmm. Um, but it's it's not nearly as cold as I was expecting. Yeah, it's nine degrees and it's got nineteen knots. Okay, dusting up to twenty two. Hmm. Um, uh, one reason I ask is that, uh, and so my audience knows I'm I'm uh, calling you from mid June in Kansas. It's a hundred and three degrees Fahrenheit, which is almost forty Celsius, and the wind gusts are like averaging about twenty five. So this is probably the biggest temperature differential of any uh, episode of my podcast ever. I was expecting it to be much colder, um, and in August when we have um, a sh- like the shoulder seasons, like mm-hmm. March and August are the coldest windiest most Hmm. brutal months um Hmm. that will when it will be getting wind chills like negative 80 and stuff like that Mm -hmm. now as i understand it the sun set in april (laughs) and it will return in august is that right that's correct yeah um for mcmurdo we yeah we had our last sunset a bunch of us got to go out um onto this the ice shelf um and we watched the last sunset go down it Hmm. took quite a while we were out there it was negative 40 out there um and it and now and then it took about six weeks no i'm sorry it took about three weeks for the sun to go completely down where we didn't have it was kind of like a twilighty and that's it took about three weeks for it to get completely dark and now it's dark 24 hours a day wow and then in the summer the reverse will happen and it's daylight 24 hours a day. Now, as, an, as I understand it, it's much more common for people to be on the ice, as you say, in the summer. Is this your first winter on the ice? Yes, this is my first winter. I've done two summers. Um, this is my first winter. The winter lasts a lot longer. Um, the summer officially is October to the end of February, mm-hmm. and then uh, winter starts pretty much like March 1st is what we consider, and then that goes to the end of September. So the winter season is much longer, um, and it's it's got a much smaller population. Uh, this past summer was, because we were still in like kind of a COVID pandemic population levels, I think we topped out around 700. A normal season would have McMurdo to population topping out maybe around 11 to 1,200. Hmm. Um, whereas in the winter, again, we're we're a smaller population than we normally would be in the winter. We're at 126 people um, on station. And other than the number of people there and the fact that it's dark, uh, how's it different uh, being a winter worker than a summer worker? 
Um, it's a it's a much more relaxed environment. The the summer because it's the busy season and there's just so much going on. It's a very like heightened level. Hmm. Um, everything just seems to be at a very frantic pace. Um, somebody described summer as a sprint and winter as a marathon. Hmm. And it really definitely feels like we work a lot down here. We work six days a week, 54 hours minimum. And in the summer, it just seems like you're just going and going and going, whereas the winter just has a much more relaxed pace. And is it true there's three airfields down there? Let's see, three... Um, I can't, because I, I know of, like, there's Willie Williams Field, which is, like, our smaller airfield, and that's mm-hmm. ne- that's mainly used for um, the LC-130s that come in. There are small C-130s that have skis. We're the only, I believe the U.S. military is the only, has the only airplanes of L- the LC-130s that have skis on them, which is hmm. pretty cool to watch them land and take off. And then we have our big airfield, Phoenix, but I'm, I can't think of the third but honestly, I'm not. I can't think of the third. Well, one. that's Wikipedia speaking. I, I read about McMurdo, okay. and it said three <laughs> airfields. So, so I'm not speaking as an expert. Um, but you do, you know, you support. I presume mostly scientific work. What kind of projects are going on there uh, around the 12 month cycle of the the year in Antarctica? There's really there, it's just incredible science that's happening down here. And in the summer, what's really fantastic is they do science lectures twice a week. So you just get to, you get to learn directly from the scientists about wow. things that are happening down here. And they're doing, obviously, a lot of climate science. They do diving, and they do a lot of research onto how the, the warming temperature, the warming water temperatures are affecting the small animals and different fish and different sorts of things that live in the water here. Like the seals, they do seal research, penguin research. They're doing amazing research on the glaciers and even things that are, there's like this, this like on Thwaites Glacier, which is um, kind of referred to in the media as the Doomsday Glacier. It's a giant glacier in West Antarctica. They send these incredible robots underneath the glacier to see what's happening underneath there hmm. with event and a lot of the scientists a lot of the science with this um with these robots it's really i think is fantastic is that the goal is at some point in the future is to send these robots to a planet called europa which i had never heard of which is is that a, a moon? moon yeah yes it's one of the moons and the goal is to send it there to see if there is like life under, because it's a frozen moon, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's like the goal is to like see if there's anything under the ice there, which wow. was just mind blowing to me that they can do this kind of stuff. Um, and they, you know, obviously lots of space research is happening here. There's an amazing like telescope called Ice Cube at the South Pole. We've got NASA here that like tracks satellites and you just get to learn about all this fantastic, amazing science and you get to speak to the scientists like just in the galley at dinner and everything, which is really fantastic. And in the winter, there's less science happening. It's um, just because there's not as many scientists on station mm-hmm. because of the darkness, but they do are, they are still tracking and doing a lot of things um, to support the science that happens over the summer. And we have like, they're like a bunch of, sea spiders just hatched um, not too long ago in one of our labs. I didn't even know that something as sea spiders existed until I came down here. I I didn't either. And they don't, (laughs) yeah, like they're these giant, and some of them get to be really big because they have, um, oh, I'm going to forget the name of it because I'm starting to get what's called T3 just because you're in the winter and your brain is not being as stimulated as Hmm. much um, as it would be normally. Um, but they things get bigger here in the in the cold waters than they would normally. And so, when you say else, big, what like science big. fiction monster big, or like as big as a softball, oh. as big as a golf ball? What do you mean by big? Um, so, like as big, like these sea spiders can get as big as like a dinner, as like an average like dinner plate. Wow! They can just get to be really, and they're not related to like spider, like house spiders, as we know, they just kind of, that's what they look like. They have like hmm. kind of a central body and then they've got these big, long spindly legs. Hmm. 
Hmm. Yeah, actually, I never heard of sea spiders until just now. So that's interesting. You know, yeah. um, actually, one of the things that really fascinated me that you posted on uh, Facebook uh, over, over the months was the idea of an OB tube. What is an OB tube and um, how does it work and what, what, what purpose does it serve? Okay, so it's called the OB tube. Oh, and the it, OB, we okay. Do a, yeah, the OB tube. So we, um, like a lot of workplaces, have tons of acronyms. Mm-hmm. So the OB tube stands for observation tube. Mm-hmm. And it's this amazing sort of, it's, it's a, just a giant tube. And when you look at pictures of it, um, if you Google it, it's kind of got a very, I kind of think like old Florida sort of feel. Like a, it looks like something from like a 1950s, um, do diving, ancient diving sort of thing. So it's like this big green tube that they put huh. into the sea ice. They drill a big hole into the sea ice. They put this tube down, and then they allow the water to kind of heal and form or the ice to form back around. And then we get to go down inside it. And you can go one person at a time, and you descend into this tube maybe about... 20 feet, 25 feet, something like that. You have to like climb down using this ladder and then you're in this little enclosure and it's got windows all around and you get to see life under the ice. And for, you know, obviously the divers, they go down all the time, but the vast majority of us will never, will never get a chance to go under the ice. So this is our chance to go and see. And you can hear the seals like clicking to each other. Um, if you're very lucky, one will swim by. You can see, like, the small little jellyfish. And I remember at one point, like, being there, and there was, like, a jellyfish kind of, like, stuck in the ice, but just kind of moving its tentacles around. Um, there's these tiny little creatures called sea angels, mm-hmm. which were just kind of my favorite because they look kind of like a little like a little angel you would have drawn as a child, like a tiny little round head and then tiny little wings and a little pointed, um, a little, little point at the end. And they're very, very small and they're kind of iridescent-y and glow as they wave their wings around. Um, they're actually apparently terrifying looking if you look at them under a microscope because their entire head opens up to be their mouth. Um, but, but, uh, if you don't, if you just look at them through the ob tube, they're quite beautiful as they just flow around in the water. And it's just really special to be under there. And I was very fortunate the first time that I went down because it, the ob tube was located near one of the diving huts. And so you got to see the divers going down. You got to see them like moving around and like hanging out when they were doing their, um, safety stops before they went back up. And it was just, it's such an incredible experience. It's one of the, I mean, I've had a lot of incredible experiences down there, but that was really, really special. And it's not something that happens every summer um, because it's it requires a lot of manpower to put them in. Hmm. And the sea ice just isn't always safe enough for them to do it. Um, so I was very fortunate that they, they did it last summer. How does it feel to be in there? Is it? Do you feel like you're in outer space, or is like how how can you describe the feeling of being in an ob tube and seeing these amazing creatures that that uh, aren't even possible to see in the United States? I think it, it does. Like it just. I think I always kind of get a little bit overwhelmed. Um, like I've traveled a lot and I've done a lot of really amazing things, and so I feel like a lot of times like I'm very jaded when it comes to different experiences but like when you're descending down into this tube and it just kind of I feel like I always kind of like start to get like a small little kid excitement because mm. you don't know what you're going to see like maybe you'll maybe this time you'll see a, a seal swim by and it's it's just kind of very over like overwhelming overwhelming joy is how I kind of how I always felt down there like and how lucky I am to get to experience this kind of thing um since very few people will ever get to to do something like this and it's because yeah you just you kind of go down there it's a little bit scary and claustrophobic to go down there in your in your jacket because you're supposed to wear you're not supposed to wear your big red which is the big puffy candidate goose jacket they give because your big red can kind of expand and then you can get Hmm. stuck in the ob tube but to like Mm -hmm. be descending down into this hole and then to get into 
a bigger environment, but still a very close-fit environment. But then just to hear and starting to see things is really incredible. And I, I think I, I, I probably did tear up the first time I went down there because it just is so amazing and otherworldly to get to hear all these things and get to experience these types of events. It, yeah, like I said, most of it, most people will never get a chance to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I'm jealous. I want to go. This this really sounds amazing. Um, now, you also mentioned a penguin named Buddy. What's the story of Buddy the oh. Penguin? <laughs> um, so Buddy was, I, I remember I walked into work one morning um, this past summer, and somebody said, well, did you see the penguin? And, and I was like, "No, where's the pink? What, what are we? What are you talking about? Because uh, we're you know, we're near water, and so we do get penguins. And every now and again, like penguins will run through town, or come around and explore a little bit. Um, but Buddy, our penguin, as we named him, he decided to come up on a Sunday evening. Well, we called it. We said he, but we don't, we don't actually know whether it was a male or a fe- female penguin. But Buddy just wandered up." And because this past summer was a COVID summer, we weren't a 24-hour department. We normally would be um, my summer job. And Buddy thought that our area seemed quiet and a nice place to hang out, so just kind of hung out by our building. And then obviously Monday morning when things started to happen, Buddy started to attract a lot of attention. And in fact, like Buddy basically was molting. And when penguins are molting, they... Get, they can't go into the water, so they can't eat. They get and apparent they can't eat. They get cold, and apparently it's a really uncomfortable process losing all your feathers and getting huh. new feathers. So they get a little bit grumpy, <laughs> and so they just like to be. Buddy just decided to come on up into town and hang out, and we tracked Buddy most days. A lot of times, you know, just because it was something different to do and just but a lot of times to make sure that other departments because buddy decided to go up into what we call mill vans which are kind of like big um storage containers mm-hmm. um when we have like mill van alley and stuff and he decided to go up in there to hang out and we really wanted to know where he was at all times to yeah. ensure that other people weren't gonna you know there wasn't going to be a, a runover accident and people just were aware where Buddy was, mm-hmm. so it and it brought a lot of it brought a lot of excitement and joy to our day to go out and do a little penguin hunt and just check out to make sure that we knew where he was. <laughs> and I think it brought a lot of um, joy to a lot of my friends. One of my friends, her, she would send the updates with her daughter every day to preschool, and so then I got a package in the mail of all the all the little preschool kids had drawn pictures of what they would do if they got to go on an adventure with Buddy. That must be really exciting for them. You know, I I was thinking, I guess you put some of your Buddy pictures on Facebook, but I'm wondering if you can describe for our listeners, what's it like to be down there? Does it feel sort of industrial? Is it beautiful? Can you see mountains? What is the, obviously in the winter, you can't see much because it's dark, but like, how would you describe the setting of where McMurdo is down in Antarctica? Um, so McMurdo is um, on an island called Ross Island, and we're not actually on the continent of hmm. Antarctica. Um, we're just off side, off of it. Um, we're, this is the furthest south that you can get to by water that's accessible, like so that we can you can get easily to the South Pole for traverses. McMurdo, um, as a station, I believe, like some of the documentaries that I watched before I came down here, described it as a developing world mining town. Hmm. Um, and that that really fits. It's a, it's a good descriptor. McMurdo is old. There's a lot of old buildings. This is a very harsh continent. So even things that are new don't stay shiny new for very long um, with volcanic rock and, and what we call fines, like just those little bits of that volcanic rock being blown around by these very harsh winds. So it doesn't, McMurdo itself is not a very pretty place. Um, mm. It's a very industrial, uh, you know, it's, it's built to be used and gets abused by the environment. And But the 
overall scenery is very beautiful. We, oh, if you look out over the sea ice, you can see the Royal Society Range, which are beautiful mountains. You know, as your eye gets, you know, tricks you, it looks like it's very close, but in fact, I've been told they're about 40 miles away across hmm. the sea ice. But we just have beautiful snow-covered mountains. We have open water um, all around us because we have a, like, we, they build um, what's called an ice pier. So they build, uh, like, a, a pier made of ice for us right in our bay called Winter Quarters Bay um, that they use to unload the ships that bring us supplies in every January. And so we have open water around us. You get to, we can go on hikes, and it's, it's, it can be very, very beautiful here. So, you know, it's not necessarily very pretty buildings, mm-hmm. but the scenery is incredibly beautiful. And we get to go out. We're very lucky to get to go out and explore things. Even the winter, like we can go on hikes, we can go cross country skiing, and to you know go out on walks and stuff like that. Are there designated hiking trails, or can you just sort of wander off at risk of getting lost? What's a hike like? Oh, there's definitely um, hiking trails that we go on. Because the one thing that we like to say here is nothing on the continent can kill you except for the entire continent. Um, so we definitely were told to stay on trail um, because with some of our trails, there's crevasses not mm. too far off trail. So you, you need to be careful and mindful because obviously if you don't, if you go out and you don't carry a radio with you or something, and you, or if you go out by yourself and you fell in, nobody would ever find you or know maybe that you're missing. So we have to be very careful to stay on trail and and we have anything from like a small like I can get down to what we call hut point um in about ten minutes, and that's just you know a lovely point that has right by the water that's where the penguins hang out a lot of times when they're in. We can see seals and whales from there, or you can do um a big hike to a rock called castle rock mm-hmm. looks like a small castle um and that one is i think eight miles, maybe seven, eight miles, something like that. Um, and in the winter, it's very popular to ski that one. It's popular to ski it in the summer as well. Um, we can go out sometimes on the airfield roads, like leading out to the airfields to go cross country skiing and just walking out there. And during the summer, like I'll, I was in part of a running club and we'd go and do runs out there. So there is a lot of opportunity for outdoor activities here which is really great oh that's that's amazing the um as a, as a, an aside here is it only employees who can go down there to, or do do like tourist boats never come we will have tourist boats that come through every now and again so my first season was kind of the last normal year um so it was t- summer 2019 going into 2020 and from my recollection, there was a tourist boat that came from New Zealand, and they kind of were cruising around, and I think they got off at Hut Point and, like, walked around, and maybe they got driven over to Scott Base, which is the New Zealand base that's about a mile and a half away from us. Um, they don't usually come into McMurdo very, I don't think. I don't know if they're actually allowed to come into McMurdo. Hmm. Um this past summer, we did have, there was a Russian cruise ship, I believe, that was cruising around that asked for permission to come in. Um, they wanted to go to our bar, apparently. <laughs> um, but our bars are not open in the middle of the day. Um, and so, and I, I think at that point, our vessels were in. And when our supply vessels are in, town is just buzzing with energy and there's just a lot to be done. So our bars are actually closed completely. But, um, yeah, so we don't get it. For the vast majority, everything down here is just, I would say, 99% of the time, it's just um, workers down here, for us and for Scott Base. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier the big red jacket. So um, what what are your clothing options? Uh, How much time do you spend indoors versus outdoors? So um, we are given what's called um, our extreme weather gear, our ECW. And for most people, that contains um, your big red, which is your big, giant red Canada goose jacket that is 
very warm and snuggly and keeps you incredibly warm um, all all summer and winter long. And then you're given bibs um, to put over, like either either like insulated Carhartt bibs if you're going to be working mm. outside or if you're going to have an inside job, you'll get like wind pants to put over your own stuff. We get fleece layers, um, a gator, like a fleece gator to put around your neck, hats, all that kind of stuff. We get all of that in Christchurch before we come down and then we get like a, a good pair of boots. Um, we call them bunny boots mm-hmm. and they're just like these giant white boots that you get if you're going to work an inside job. Um, my jobs, in the summer and winter are completely indoors. They're more office jobs, so I just have to go back and forth between buildings. Um, but there definitely are a lot of people here who spend most of the days working outside, um, whether they're working on machines or, you know, whether, like, the the guys who run the, the men and women who to take care of all of our roads and make sure our roads are functional and clear of snow, who roll the runway all the time to make sure that if the runways stay nice, so if we did need a flight in the winter, that, you know, a flight would be able to come in. Um, and they're outside, yeah, 20 other outside their almost entire day. And what about the facilities? Where do you eat and sleep and shower and use the bathroom? Okay, so the, we it's dormitory style. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody in the summer, everybody will have a roommate. Um, I and in the winter, everybody has their own room. And so, having done a lot of traveling and living in hostels, I feel like I was very well suited to coming and living at McMurdo um, because of being used to communal living like that. Um, your first year, you're going to have anywhere between one roommate in a very small room or up to four to five roommates in a slightly larger room. Um, and your first year, you're always going to be in a building where you're gonna, your bathroom's going to be down the hall and it's going to be shared facilities. Mm-hmm. Once you've been down here a season, you qualify for what we call the uppercase storms. And the, these are slightly smaller rooms, um, but you're only going to have one roommate. And you're going to have a suite mate where you, it's it's kind of like a do, like a dormitory style in college, um, where you know you have a connecting bathroom in between, and you know that's where the toilet and the shower is. And then everybody like in the uppercase dorms, um, you have like your own sink in your room, which is really nice. And so I live in an uppercase dorm. In the winter, people some people like. Um, the 155 rooms, which 155 is our main building that houses like the kitchen and the cafeteria. That's what we call the galley. Um, and then those have the communal rooms that people typically have to live in their first year. But a lot of these rooms are very big. So in the winter, when we all have our own rooms, a lot of people like those rooms because then they have a very large space for themselves over the winter. Um, we all eat, it's all communal eating. Um, so we have an, a big kitchen, big commercial kitchen. And then, you know, and it's all kind of like cafeteria style. You grab your tray, you grab your silverware and your plate and everything, and you just go and um, have whatever you want. Our our kitchen crew is killing it this winter. Hmm. Um, I had been advised that the food gets, you know, the food doesn't get great and gets really monotonous over winter, and that has not been the case this winter. Um, if anything, they're doing too good of a the, the, Our cooks and our bakers are doing too good of a job for a lot of us huh. uh, because everybody's putting on weight. Um, but they're doing a fantastic job. And obviously, we don't have a lot of flights in the winter. We've only had um, one flight since March. We had a flight in early May due to a medevac. And that brought us in freshies, um, some fresh vegetables and fresh fruit. Mm-hmm. But other than that, everything is frozen um, or canned. And our kitchen crew do, do, does fantastic jobs in making canned and frozen food. And sometimes it has been frozen for many years. Mm. Um, not just edible, but something you actually want to eat. Is it a breakfast, lunch, dinner situation? Can you s- snack or have a meal in your room? Um, how does that work? Um, yeah, so we have so we have breakfast. We have like set meal times for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
Um, and then we have what's called grab and go, um, just these like a lot of like you know leftovers or like you know pizza that's that was served and then is all wrapped up and everything and you can in like these freezers and you can just go and grab it and leave um and then also a lot of people have uh, food in their rooms like i have i always have tons of snacks um i bring snacks down with me in the summer when i knew i was going to winter i ordered more snacks um a lot of people have like lots of candy and dried fruit and dried nuts and all kinds of stuff in their rooms um there's people who i don't know if they're really supposed to but they i know of people who have like microwaves and air fryers in their room Hmm. um because you can get stuff from the galley you know you could there's definitely people who cook in their rooms all the time i've known people who have crock pots and instant pots and they just get um raw raw food from the galley and like they'll just ask they'll just work it out with um like the the cooks and everything to just get frozen vegetables and some meat and stuff and then they'll do everything they'll prepare everything to their own liking in their room i have like a tiny little kettle sort of thing that you can cook in and sometimes i'll make like mac and cheese or ramen stuff like that if i don't feel like going over to the galley um so there's you're definitely no one starves here is there any food that you, that you miss? Like, are there some things that you just can't get and you wish you had? Um, well, right now, I would love to have, like, an avocado or something, like a fresh fresh, fresh vegetable that's not cabbage. Um, hmm. We have a lot of cabbage this winter because, <laughs> obviously, cabbage is something that will last. Um, but I don't – I think the main thing – we were talking about this recently at dinner – um, we have a big family table that a lot of us eat at at me- various mealtimes in the winter. Um, and we were talking about, like, what you would miss the most. And somebody said that they miss fresh milk the most. Hmm. And it occurred to me, and I was like, that, yeah. Because everything else we can, you can, you know you're going you're gonna to have it eventually. And, you know, but, like, we have cereal. And, like, you know, maybe you just want to have a nice bowl of cereal, but all we have is dried milk. Hmm. Like reconstituted dried, like constituted dried milk, or like long life milk, and just to have like some fresh milk or some ice cream, I'd really love to have like regular normal ice cream. We have um, like soft soft serve, okay, um, but not. I haven't had ice cream since October. You're, you're on the ice, but there is no ice cream. <laughs> exactly. Now, is there uh, is there a barter economy? Like when somebody gets a care package, or if somebody has more of this kind of special treat, do, do people trade a lot? Is there a, what you might call a black market economy, or um, does everybody just go to the cafeteria and eat what's there? I think um, I I'm fairly because again I have so many snacks. Um, my friends laugh a lot because somebody will mention something i'll be like i have that i have so much of it please come and take it especially like chocolate and candy and stuff like that so i think probably some people trade back and forth i think a lot of people here it's an incredibly generous community um and so if you put like if you put a sign up on like we have like a bulletin board that's our community board and if you put a sign up that you were needing something or wanting something and does anybody have it and you could buy it chances are someone's just going to give it to you hmm. um you know if you're just if you're really craving a certain snack people are it, this this community down here is one of the most generous um communities i think i've ever experienced um, everybody's everybody realizes you're in the same boat, so everyone's like willing to share and contribute um, to the overall community, which is really fantastic. That's great to hear. Um, like on the day to day life, are there certain things that characterize differences from U.S. life? Like, do you, can you only take a shower that lasts two minutes? Or is there a special routine for the toilets because it's so cold? Uh, what are what are just like the the, the the quotidian plumbing things? Is there anything unusual about that? Um, not here, no. At the South Pole, um, because the South Pole all and when you get out into the field camps, like the where they were living out in tents, and and the, the field camps are only open in the summer. Um, 
they have a lot of more water restrictions. I believe at the South Pole, you're only supposed to take two five-minute showers a week. Wow. Um, here at McMurdo, they they ask us to not take excessively long showers um, because it is expensive to desalinate the water that mm-hmm. we use, um, but we don't have like restriction any like any sorts of water restrictions um, or any sorts of. I, I have I have heard that once it comes into like October, like August and September, that middle season where it starts to get really cold, that um, the dorm rooms that are on the first floors of the buildings, the bathrooms will start to freeze. Um, I've only ever gotten here in October, so I haven't experienced that for myself. But when I got here this past October of 2021, my roommate had gotten here in August. And she told me about how when she arrived, the toilet was frozen. Um, she had to grab a heater and, like, put a heater in the bathroom. And she's like, yeah, there'd be, like, a layer of ice on the shower floor. Goodness. So you needed to, like, melt that before you're, you know, <laughs> slipping and sliding when you get into the shower. Good grief. Have you, yeah. Have you been to the South Pole? You mentioned the South Pole. Are you allowed to go there? Sadly, no. Um yeah, I have not. I have. I haven't worked at the South Pole, and we don't get the opportunity to just go, just to go. Um, it used to be, from my, from what I have heard, it used to be something that was more common. Um, they used to be called sleigh rides, and they were what we call them boondoggles. That they're morale trips, where you get to maybe go out and you know, go see something different, um, whether it, you might, you know, maybe you just go, there's an extra seat on the flight to the South Pole, so they'd send somebody on a morale trip, um, but they don't no longer do that. So I have not worked at the South Pole, so I haven't gotten to go there. Hmm. Now, um, there is, there's a lot of people working in close quarters. I know that you do, there's a 5K run that you've done. You've talked about a tug-of-war contest, Americans versus New Zealanders. Um, what is the community life like um, when you're not working? Um, so the community down here is in, is absolutely incredible. When I first interviewed to come down here, um, the woman who was interviewing me was telling me how the department that I'd be working in was a 24-hour department, and so I would spend a lot of the season on what we called mid-rats. Um, it's a night shift, but you know, but then I'd have two days off a week. And I was like, two days off a week? Like, what do you do with two days off a week? And she's like, oh, just you wait. She's like, there's almost too much to do down here in your off time. So we have everything. Like, yeah, we have the events with the Kiwis where we've got the the tug of war. We have what's called man-hauling where it's a race where there's one person sitting on a sled and six people towing them five or a 5k we have a 5k turkey trot we have a 10k race we have a marathon and a half marathon and an ultra marathon this past summer we had an um a 1k a half k and a 1k race for those people who didn't want to run the half marathon marathon or ultra marathon (laughs) the following weekend um we have um what else do we have this past summer we put on a very mcmurdo Centric Nutcracker, um, like the show. Christmas ballet. Yeah, like the Christmas ballet. So um, there was three incredible Stewies, and the, the Stewies are the folks who work in our galley in our kitchen, and who are they do a lot of dishes. They, you know, they refresh all the food as needed. The Stewies have some of the hardest, have probably, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of people, I think, have like one of the hardest jobs on station, and. They work, they do, and they work incredibly hard, and they have to deal with a lot of people, um, and a lot of them have just really incredible attitudes. And these three women are were just they were like, we want to put on, we want to put on a performance, we put want to put on the Nutcracker. And one of the women had done a lot of, well, actually, two of the women have done a lot of um, ballet, and so they really made it very McMurdo centric. Like there was. A, you know, a gal- like they turned one of the scenes into like a galley scene with the Stewies, like pretending to wash dishes. And there was um, a scene where it's like sea creatures and different um, different creatures coming out of what we called Mother Crary, 
um, I'm not familiar enough with the Nutcracker that I can mention the scene that that in that it, it emulates. But we came out from like under the skirt, and I was a penguin, like just kind of wandering around the station. And we had a penguin and a sea spider, and a sea slug and a seal and all those sorts of things. There was a scene where the janitors were cleaning up where our fuel, um, like the people who do the fuels, the fuelies, have a notorious prank war that happens every summer with the fuelies against the wasties, who are the folks who handle our waste department. And so it was a very, it was a huge community event that so, that like, I think it worked out to be almost half the station participated in some way. And then it was put on in our big gym for just one night, and the big gym was packed with like hundreds of people, um, just to see, this, just to see the Nutcracker. It, it sounds um, fun. I mean, it, it it sounds like a it was, like a fun place to be. Yeah, and we had and we have costume parties. Um, and in the winter, I was kind of thinking I would have a little less time, or a little less stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the other day, I was talking to my mom, and she's like, well, are you bored? And I'm like, I'm definitely not bored. You know, on Mondays, I do Stitch and Bitch. On Tuesdays, there's Ultimate Frisbee um, or, you know, or maybe just, like, hang out with friends. On Wednesdays, there's Trivia or there's Finance Club or maybe there's an open mic night. On Thursdays, we get to go over to Scott Bass. Um, on Fridays, there's soccer. There's, you know, and then in the summer, there's even more to do. There's volleyball. There's there's, and then we have, you know, on Saturdays we'll have like, you know, there's all kinds of costume parties that happen. Like we'll have a space party. We'll have an 80s video dance party. We've got, the, we celebrated the, the Kiwis over at Scott Base through a birthday party for the Queen um, a couple weekends ago. And so there's just, there's constantly stuff to do. And people are very giving to do, um, giving with their time and energy to do it, to do things. Uh, this coming weekend, we're going to have our midwinter dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, midwinter is the only true Antarctic celebration. Mm-hmm. Everything else, that, like all the other big holidays that we have down here, Christmas and Thanksgiving, Halloween, 4th of July, obviously these are holidays that exist outside. Um, but midwinter is a strictly Antarctic thing, mm-hmm. and there's a, it will have a huge dinner. The galley will be completely decorated, and... You know, people are giving every evening this week to make decorations um, and to help transform the galley into our theme this year is dinner at the end of the universe. Uh-huh. Um, so to help transform, like making giant shadow boxes, making tapestries to put on the ceiling, um, to string up lights. And people want to participate and people are so incredibly crafty and can create things, can create amazing things out of nothing um, or out of things that you couldn't imagine. Like for the Nutcracker, they needed to make a giant orange bag um, because, again, it's a McMurdo-themed, it's an Antarctic-themed Nutcracker, and we have these big orange, like, duffel bags that we get in Christchurch that will hold all of our, like, a lot of our stuff to bring down here. And they needed the woman who was going to make the orange bag. She needed a lot of orange fabric, and she couldn't find anything on station. And then there was a fuel drop in West Antarctica by the Russians, and they used an orange parachute. And she Mm. saw a picture of it. Um, She saw a picture of it somehow, and she like contacts you know somebody that she knew out at this field camp in West Antarctica and was like, can I get the parachute? So they, you know, the parachute comes back to McMurdo in a trash bag and it smells like fuel. And she, like, she she got it washed in commercial laundry and then she cut apart the parachute to make a prop for the Nutcracker. And, you know, and we have people, and people here will just give their time and give things that they have, help find things around station. And we have an amazing um, kind of like thrifting community here. Huh. Um, so we have what's called skua. And um, skua is a bird. A skua is a bird kind of similar to a, um, 
a seagull. So it's mm-hmm. a scavenger type of bird. Mm-hmm. They will, they're here in the summer. They will dive bomb you for your food. You have to like kind of cover your food when you walk outside. And, but then what we eat, but then we have turned skua into a verb, like to skua. Um, like, so if you have something that you no longer want, like if you've got clothing items or a room decoration, pair of shoes, some socks, you know, you're leaving and you're, you've still got half a bottle of shampoo and you're like, I don't need to take this home with me. So you put it in skua and then it's a free for all and people just grab whatever they need. Um, so it becomes like this whole community thing. We have skua parties at the beginning of winter um, because there's so much stuff left from summer that, you know, just needs to get passed out into the community. Um, but that's also another really fantastic thing here, that if you need something, school will provide. Like, you don't need to order it. School will provide it for you. You just put it out there into the universe. You're like, I need, like, I, like I'm looking at them right now in my room. But I wanted, um, they're called curtain lights. Mm-hmm. They're for, they're like a, a room decorations. And so, you know, it's like a light at the top, and then it's got strands of Christmas lights coming down. And I was going to order one off of Amazon. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait and see what Skua gives me. And within three days, um, somebody who was leaving was like, Karen, I've got these lights. Like, do you want them? And I was like, oh, it's a curtain light. I, so I just wanted it. I'm like, I was just, I just put it out there the other day that I really wanted one. And Skua provides. It sounds like a true community, even though there's no indigenous population in Antarctica. You guys are really creating a community there. Is it? You've mentioned a lot of women. Is it? Is it uh, a fair mix between men and women? Um, how's that? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are um, the women usually top out at maybe thirty percent of the community. Mm. Um, we have, but I, I think because there's so few women down here. Um, and there's a real bonding experience with a lot of the women here. Like there's just truly incredible people, um, men and women who are down here doing things. But I do think um, in regards to the community, it's a huge reason as to why people come back year after year after year Mm. to McMurdo and to the other stations um, because of the community aspect. It's something I think that a lot of people are lacking kind of out there in the in the green world um but it's something that is alive and well here um you know to to constantly be surrounded by people that you know um to you know to go to a meal every day and know that you're going to have a meal with friends and that you can you know there's always going to be somebody down to watch a movie or to play a game or to do some crafting or something um I think is a really spectacular thing and is why a lot of people really come back and want to be here um, because the community is so spectacular here. You know, you met your ICE parents in South America. Is it a pretty well-traveled bunch or do people show up having traveled uh, uh, much of the green world before they come to the ICE? Um, I think there's a lot there. I definitely have known people who this was, you know, their plane ride to make start making their way to Antarctica is the first time they've ever been on a plane. Wow. Um, and then there's, yeah, <laughs> then there's a lot of people who have done a huge amount of traveling, um, whether it's prior to coming down here or, or afterwards, um, because we are very fortunate that we get to, like, we, we deploy to Antarctica from New Zealand mm-hmm. and then that's where we go back to, um, and obviously with COVID, it's been a little bit trickier, um, but, you know, typically people will stay and travel around New Zealand at least, you know, maybe go up to the South Pacific, maybe go up to Southeast Asia or go to Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that overall there are a lot of people who are extremely well-traveled and take the opera because there's, because there's people, it's contract work. And if you're coming back year after year after year, you know, you kind of have come down here we, the, the salaries aren't the highest here, but hmm. because everything is provided for you, you can save a lot of money. And so, you know, people will save money and then go traveling and then maybe go back and work 
for a month or two and then come back. Years ago, when I was in this dirtbag hostel in Egypt, in Cairo, and I met a woman who was traveling, and she like helped refuel helicopters. I don't know if it was McMurdo Bay, but she worked on the ice and then traveled when she wasn't on the ice. It was it was amazing. Yeah, they used. I mean, I think it it used to be a little bit different in terms of like we used the program used to give us my understanding like kind of tickets that you could just go back to New Zealand and you could just cash in your ticket and get the, the all the money for it. It's not that flexible anymore. Um, and I don't know what will happen when I get to leave in October, you know, but my plan will definitely be to spend some time in New Zealand. And then, you know, if I get, can, can go up to like Southeast Asia, I definitely will. After a year on ice, I will definitely be craving some warmth. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, it gets, you know, it gets, I think I, it got up to like maybe like 40 at the height of summer. Wow. Um, this past summer, but I would like, I mean, I've seen lots of sunshine, but I'd like to have some very warm sunshine. Well, that would be a, a good combination going from the, the ob tube one time of year to walking through the jungle in Thailand the next time of year. I like, I like that mix. Exactly. <laughs> Um, you mentioned watching movies with, with friends there. Sometimes, like, can you get Netflix or can you listen to podcasts or do you have to download everything before you get there? You have to download everything before you get here. Um, so we can't, we can't do any streaming um, or anything like that. Um, in the summer, our, our internet is extremely limited. Um, it's, gotten, it's gotten better. They just, um, we had an amazing team um, this past summer from Guatemala and they put up like this giant dome thing. I don't exactly know everything that it's supposed to do, but it's supposed to make our internet better. Um, and then in the winter, because it's such a small population, we can have Wi-Fi in our rooms on our computers, but we can't connect our phones to the internet. Hmm. We can't, um, we can't do any streaming in the summer. It's, very slow. Like you might be able to do a YouTube video in the summer if you wait a half an hour for it to kind of load up. Huh. Um, and it's better if you are working the midnight shift when most people are sleeping because the internet gets a lot better. Um, but in the in the even in the winter we can't do we can't do any streaming. So you have to download everything ahead of time, um, which can get tricky if you don't necessarily. You know, they try to do a good job of telling you what to expect, um, but there definitely are a lot of people who come down here who don't realize that, yeah, they didn't they didn't bring any music with them because they just thought they were going to be able to, like, stream their Spotify in their rooms and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. But again, the community will absolutely provide you with anything you need. Um, you know, if you want to, if you want to listen to some K-pop and you put a sign up that, you know, you've lost your music, somebody has everything that you want on their hard drive and they are more than willing to give it to you and put it on your hard drive or on your computer. That's awesome. Is there a library? Is like official library or is there book swapping? Oh, absolutely. Um, I actually found, uh, vagabonding the other like a few uh, a few months ago awesome um in skua and i put it in the and i put it in the library um but we do have a library down um it's actually in the one of our uppercase dorms it's a small library but it is jam packed with really amazing offerings um a lot of books that um people have written you know people have either they've written it or maybe their friend or family member or somebody that they know or a book that they've written that they've brought down here and they really enjoyed and they put it in the library mm -hmm. um and we've got and the library is a really great place for people to volunteer um a lot of people like it because then they're forced you know they're forced to read on their two-hour volunteer shift um and in the summer it's a really quiet um space in an environment that in the busyness of summer isn't always very quiet. That sounds really awesome. And, and actually, Karen, I, I, my new book, The Vagabond's Way, comes out in this fall, and I will send you a copy. Please take it back to Antarctica. I love the idea of my books being in Antarctica. Um, just an aside, you mentioned uh, Guatemalans put in the Internet. How did that happen? Um, I don't I don't know exactly. I would imagine that it, as a, you know, it's a, McMurdo is a government-run 
mm-hmm. um, research station. So I would imagine the NSF was, you know, put out a call for improved internet. I don't exactly know. I, and I don't even know what they did. But it was just because um, our, our process of coming down here this past summer in September and October of 2021 was very different. You know, Normally we take... Um, commercial airline flights to New Zealand, and then we take a military flight down to Antarctica. But this past summer, it was, um, we had pro- we had charter flights taking us down. So obviously, like, we're all kind of quarantined, and we had went through a lot of quarantine, both in San Francisco and then in New Zealand. So when you're coming, like, when I was coming down, like, there was these guys, and they were all wearing, like, they had, they, they all had matching shirts on, and they had like a Guatemalan flag on the hmm. on the side of it, and like an Antarctican flag. And so, you know, they kind of they stood out because we were all like, "What are these guys doing? Who are they?" And nobody knew who they were. And you know, but then we got to know them over the course of the summer while they were here, and they were just they were so fantastic, and they were really fun loving. They liked to dance. They. Um, and we would have, and they were just really, really nice, very polite, and they worked really hard. Like our shuttles, our shuttle drivers, because we have shuttles that would take them to and from work for meal and bring them for meals and stuff. And our shuttle drivers would always say, like, they are the most polite. They're hmm. always so thankful. They're always really kind. Um, you know, really funny guys. And they have worked all over the world. They've worked in Afghanistan. They've worked in Iraq. They've worked in Australia. They've worked in Asia. They worked in Saudi Arabia, all over the U.S. And they build like these satellite internet connection things. I don't even I don't understand it whatsoever. Um, but they were just a real joy to have on station. I love the sound. I love the idea that you can get a job, like an internet job in Guatemala, and then if you're really good at it, then suddenly you're like this global expert and you get to work in Antarctica. Well, as we come uh, to the top of the hour here, I'm just curious to know what's the best part? What's the worst part? What, uh, what are the plus and minuses of being an Antarctica person? Um, I think a lot of the positives are uh, the community down here and the opportunity to to meet a lot of different people. Um, you know, I think a lot of people come into Antarctica thinking that it's going to be a certain a certain way and that, you know, everybody's going to be real, very like-minded. And that is not the truth whatsoever. Like, there's a variety of people down here with different experiences um, that come from different backgrounds and have different, like, views about and different opinions on things. And what I think is really great here is that because because it's this community and every kind of, everybody, a lot of people really want to get along and keep the community peaceful, um, you end up having a lot of really great conversations with people um, about about all different types of topics. Um, and I think in, in these days, because there's such discourse in society, I think that's a really rare thing. Um, and so you, you have these conversations that you maybe wouldn't have with somebody because this is somebody maybe you would never interact with on your daily life. That you would, you know, they're, they're not a part of somebody that'd be part of your social circle at home, but they're somebody you work with down here and you, you get to know them and then they get to know you and everybody's minds are better for getting to know different people, different types of people and getting to hear people's different viewpoints and opinions. And I think that's a really, really beautiful thing. And because we don't have Wi-Fi down here on our phones, it forces people, a lot of people to have conversations at meal times, mm-hmm. which is one of the things I absolutely love. And I hope they never put, like, give us the ability to have, to be checking Facebook on our phones, because that would just, I think, really destroy a lot of the beauty of the community down here. And so the community is is the absolute top thing down here for me. Um, I think the negatives, I think being away from home and being so disconnected um, can be really difficult. Um, there's, you know, I have, I have friends down here who have lost parents um, while they've been down here. And, you know, even just, even just trying to call home, you know, because we only have one day off a week. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, you know, you tend to to jam-pack that day, or maybe you just want to sleep in, but because of the time difference, it can be hard to to contact people at home. Um, So I think that feeling of 
the disconnection from loved ones is probably the worst thing mm-hmm. um, about being down here. Uh, but, you know, I think it, it does, you know, I would come back. Um, mm-hmm. So it's obviously not the worst thing in the world down here. Yeah, well... Uh, a lot of real positives. No, it sounds like it. it. It just, it sounds amazing. So I'm curious if people are listening and, and they want to get a similar job, um, what do they do? Um, and probably they want to know, they want to know if they'll, they'll be your ice mom, but we can't give away ice mom um, slots. Um, how do you apply for a yeah. job? Um, so the, the thing that I tell people the most is that you're going to want to apply for every job that you remotely qualify for. Um, like, you know, you, you, maybe you have a master's degree or you have a PhD, um, but your way in might easily be being a stewie and washing dishes for a season. Mm. And you certainly wouldn't be the first incredibly overqualified and incredibly well-educated person to wash dishes or to be a janitor scrubbing toilets. Um, Cause that, those are, those are positions that have a lot, there's a fairly large department, so it's easier to get in. So you want to apply for everything and anything. Um, there is the Antarctic support contract. If you Google that, they have a lot of jobs on there and they can link you to the various contractors that have jobs. Um, jobs typically come of open on January 1st. And so you're going to want to like apply early because right now, so it's what, March, I think it's June 13th, June 14th, as we talk here. Um, a lot of positions for this coming summer in October um, have already been filled. Hmm. There definitely still are probably some jobs out there, especially if you are more highly skilled, if you're in the trades, if you're a firefighter, hmm. um, definitely still apply. You could probably still get down for next summer because some jobs are just much easier to fill than others. But, you know, don't think that you have to be a scientist to come down here because the vast majority, 75% of us are support staff. And, you know, you could be doing anything from washing dishes to doing laundry to, you know, you know driving a loader around town. Mm-hmm. emptying trash or and, and and there's a lot of people down here who learn on the job mm-hmm. so you know if you don't know how to drive a loader but you can meet some of the other qualifications you know they'll happily teach you how to drive a loader i'll start practicing now or i'll learn down there i not that i can commit to coming <laughs> down there um any any final thoughts on on the antarctic experience and and how it has slotted into your uh, career as a, a traveler in your life? It's been, I, you know, I didn't really know a lot of what to expect coming down. Um, you know, obviously I had ice parents. I watched a lot of the, I watched a number of documentaries. Um, I read blog posts, but it was, it's so much more than what I ever could have expected. And it's really, it's, it's made my life so much richer. It's opened my eyes to contract work and to seasonal work. Um, in a way, like, you know, until five years ago, I was, you know, your standard little office worker bee. And, you know, now I have a, a much richer idea as to different things that I can do um, to pursue the life that I want to pursue. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.